Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. I have, a, uh, I have a friend who, she was getting life insurance for her family, and they were going through a new company. And if you've ever gotten new life insurance for the first time, you know that they put you through this whole process where they check your medical history, they check your blood pressure. Like, I found out in my early 20s that I had high cholesterol because we were getting life insurance, which is kind of a weird thing to find out when you're in your mid-20s. But, but that was the thing for me. And, and so she was going through the whole process of getting life insurance and writing down her medical history and tracking it all. And, and at the point where she was talking about her medical history, there was something that she had just kind of gone through recently. She'd had something wrong with her neck. It was just sore. She'd gone to lots of doctors to try and figure it out, um, chiropractors, and they just had a hard time kind of discovering what it was. Um, eventually, it, it, it went away, and it was dealt with. But in her medical history, she wrote down, because she didn't know what it was, she wrote down what it felt like. And so she wrote down that she had a pinched nerve in her neck, turned her paperwork over. It goes in for underwriting and life insurance. They got back to her and they said, I'm sorry, we cannot insure you uh, because you have had a pinched nerve. And when people have a, a pinched nerve that's diagnosed by a doctor, that is a sign that maybe there's lots of other things that, that could be wrong and it's really hard to treat and that can be very expensive. And so because of that pinched nerve, we are unable to insure you. She's like, oh, well, that, that kind of stinks, but I guess I'll go to the next place. Well, she went to the next place to try and get life insurance. And she started filling out her medical history, didn't write anything about a pinched nerve. And they got back to her and said, I'm sorry, we can't insure you because uh, there's a database that insurance companies share. And in that database, it says that you have a pinched nerve or that you had one. So unfortunately, we won't be able to insure you. Then her health insurance called her several weeks later. Said, we know we've insured you for a long time. You're self-employed. You, you know, you've been a good customer. But we've just found out that you had a pinched nerve. And as a result of that pinched nerve, we can no longer provide you health insurance. So literally... Because this one thing, this one little statement out of a pinched nerve that she didn't even have, and it was a problem that had gone away, it wasn't even something she dealt with anymore, that one little thing somehow went on this permanent record that exists out there for insurance companies. And because of that, for years, they had the hardest time trying to figure out how to get insurance. Because this one stupid little thing that wasn't even a thing, it went on her permanent record. Now, we all kind of understand this fear of things going on our permanent record. I think that starts when we're kids, right? Because even in elementary school, you hear teachers or principals or maybe even your parents, and they say things like, oh, you know, don't do that, because if you do, what will happen? It's going to go on your permanent record, right? And then, like, you're in third grade, you know, and then, the, you know, the girl sitting in front of you, she's kind of annoying, or maybe she's cute, and you kind of like her, and she's got those pigtails, and they're adorable, and you're like, oh, I'm going to show her I like her by being mean, and you reach up, and you kind of yank on her pigtails, and you just pull her hair a little bit, and you're like, you think it's funny and cute, and she starts crying, and she goes to the teacher, and next thing you're in the principal's office, and the principal's like, uh, you know, son, I hate to tell you this, but, you know, we don't pull hair around here, and, and this is going to go on your permanent record. Not even third grade. I'm sorry. <laughs> Send a note to your parents. Your parents are like, how could you do this? It's on your permanent record. And then you get into high school, and you're like, I want to go on the wrestling team. And they're like, I'm sorry. Um, we were going to have you on the team, uh, and we got your singlet all pulled out, and it's super tight and cool looking. But uh, we noticed on your permanent record that you pulled a girl's hair in third grade, and that's just not, that's not the character of our wrestling team. I'm, I, I'm sorry. 
And you work, so you're like, I can't do sports. i got to work hard at academics. And so you study, and you, you, you get great test results, and you, you develop this incredible transcript. And you put in your application to Harvard. And you go and you, and you, you, you go to Harvard for your interview, and everything's just killing it. And you sit in front of the person at your Harvard interview, and you know you've hit a home run. You've blown it out of the water. And, and you, you know you've blown it out of the water because as you're talking, they're doing things like, hmm, yeah, I like that. You know, things like that. And so you're like, I've killed this interview. And they're like, well, yeah, you know, I, let's talk about this. And they pull your folder out, and they're, like, going through, and they're smiling, like, yeah, I like that, I like that. And then it's like, oh, and you're, shoot, what is this? And they're like, well, here at Harvard, we don't allow hair pullers. That's kind of a thing. It's been in our history. Um, hair pulling is just not a thing. And so I apologize. Your transcripts are great. Your grades were great. All your extracurriculars were amazing. But you pulled hair, and it's on your permanent record. So I'm sorry, we can't allow you into Harvard. And literally, it's like you're... All you can do in your life is you end up being a hairdresser because they think you have some sort of qualifications because just some experience with hair is enough to get you in. And so that's your life because in third grade, your permanent record was ruined because you pulled a girl's hair just this one time. Permanent record, it's a thing that is really real to us. I mean, all joking aside, think about it. You, you think about your permanent record all the time. You ever been pulled over by a cop and gotten a speeding ticket? And you're like, what do I do? You know, I can just write a check and be done with this and walk away from it. Or I could go to court and I could sit through a, you know, a 12-hour class, driving class. And if I do that, what? It won't go on my permanent record. So that's what you do, right? You don't just write the check. Well, some of us write the check because our time matters. But you're like, I got to protect my permanent record. So you pay the extra. You go to the class. Uh, you know, you, you go to court because I just can't have this on my permanent driving record. Our insurance you ever get in a little, little tiny fender bender car accident or maybe something even just a little bigger and you think in your head, oh, I would love to get my insurance agency involved in this, but if I do, it's going to go on my permanent record and then my insurance rates are going to go up. And so this thing that you pay money towards every month, you don't even use because you're so scared that it's going to affect your permanent record and your permanent record might affect your insurance rates. Think about your credit report. I mean, this, this is the thing where it's like, I gotta, I've got to get a credit card or I've got to get rid of my credit card because my credit report, it's everything. It's this permanent record of all my finances. And I'll either never be able to get a house, I'll never be able to get a car. You know, I'm just going to be riding around on my stinking kick scooter everywhere I go if my credit's bad because i got to protect my permanent record. This idea of the permanent record affects us. It's all in so many areas of our lives. And for some of us, being driven by having a clean permanent record is a huge deal. And some of us, I mean, I don't know, there have been times in my life where I've run my credit report, and you look at that number, and you're just like, I suck. <laughs> you know, I am the worst. There's this, we all have this, this moral permanent record, too. You know, there's a permanent record that exists out in the world that people actually look at and they, they judge us and you get insurance rates or, or loan interest rates or whatever based on this permanent record or you get into Harvard or not into Harvard based on your permanent record. But there's this, kind, there's this moral permanent record that exists for all of us as well and it's, it's not really written down or in a database anywhere, but, but they're the things that we're sorry for that go on our moral permanent record. They're the things that feel guilty about, things we're ashamed of. The things that we regret, the things like even right now, I'm like, think about the thing you regret, and you're like, oh, don't make me think about that because it's right there, and you can pull it right off that moral permanent record, and it's just literally right there. And those things, those things that we've done in our past, they, they become part of our moral permanent record for a number of reasons. One of the reasons they become part of our moral permanent record 
is because we have in-laws who will never forget that we did that or other people in our lives who will never forget that we did that. And it's like, you know, I've been married to my wife for 20 years and I did that one stupid thing in year one and yet because I did that one stupid thing in year one, they'll never forget it and I'm always gonna be that guy to them because year one, I screwed up and because in year one I did something stupid or I wore something stupid or I said something stupid, it's literally on my permanent record with them Forever. So things that are permanent record because there's people who won't forget. And they, they won't let us forget either. There's things that go on our permanent record, our permanent moral record, because they kind of label us, right? There's things that we've done, and, and, and it, it puts a title over us. You know, cheater, divorced, bankruptcy, failure. Things that we have done in our lives that we regret and we're ashamed of and they wish we'd never done but we did it. And now that's just this, it's like literally just a flashing sign over our head. When I was in elementary school, I, I mean, I, this makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you. When I was in elementary school, there was a girl, and uh, no joke, in kindergarten, she peed her pants at school. And hand on a Bible. Like, if I don't still think about that girl, and the first thing that comes to my mind is that's the girl who pees her pants. Because one time in kindergarten, she peed her pants. It's just how, it's just how things go on our moral permanent record. They, they get labeled that way because we did something one time. And now forever, forever, I'm just labeled that person. And then there's things that go on our moral permanent record because they're things that, that we just personally can't get over. Things that we have done, and we just can't get over those things that we did. I can't, I can't get past it. I, I screwed up too big. It's too bad. And, and maybe you're the only person who knows about it. Maybe there's only one other person who knows about it. And you're doing everything you can possibly do to just try and move past it or forget about it. And, and, and all of your energy, all of your energy is spent just trying to keep other people from finding out about that one thing. And because all your time and energy is spent keeping people from finding out or keeping people from discovering it or people, keeping people from getting anywhere close to it, it just hangs on to your permanent record because you just can't, you can't get past it. It's too big. It was too ugly. It was too devastating. And, and lest you think, maybe you're here, you're not a Christian and you're not a religion person, you're not a Bible person, you're not a Jesus person. I, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. And, you know, it's good to see you. Lest you think that I'm aiming this at, at people who aren't religious or people who aren't churchy. No, no, no. This is Christians too, okay? This is people who follow Jesus because there are people who follow Jesus who believe with all their hearts that Jesus died for them to pay the penalty for their sin, that because of that, they are forgiven, that their sin accrued a debt that their sin made this IOU that they couldn't pay and that Jesus paid that debt and he paid that IOU. People who believe that and yet still believe that what they did was so big, was so ugly, that it still just sits on their permanent record. That the ultimate consequences of the things we've done, that maybe Jesus dealt with those things, but even though we accept and believe that, even though we believe it's been dealt with, it still hangs over our head because because I still did it, right? And I, maybe I'm forgiven, but I still did that thing. And it's like, Jesus, Jesus might have paid that debt for me, but like the amount that I owed, I mean, it's still on my credit report. It's still out there for people to see. Even though I've been forgiven of that debt, the existence of that debt, the very fact of its existence is still sitting out there on my moral 
credit report. And the problem with guilt and shame for us is that when we have it, it's, the, it's like sunglasses. It's like you put them on, and the lenses through which you look, when you're looking through the lenses of guilt and shame, they shade and affect everything that you see in life. Every part of your life is, is, is tinted in a way that, that guilt and shame uh, makes, makes your life just completely twisted up and not, intent, not the way God intended for us to see life or to live our lives, and it just binds it up. And so today, I mean, I want to ask the question, what do we do? What do you do with that if you've got a mark on your permanent record? Even, even if you believe Jesus died to forgive that mark, it's still there. What do you do? Do you just live with it? Do you just try to ignore it? Do you try to forget it? Or is there a way to clear our moral permanent record? So today I want to take a look at the life of someone who you may see yourself in if this is something that you deal with. I want to talk to you about a man named Paul who guilt was a super real thing for him because this was a guy who'd done some messed up stuff. Now, let me give you some background on Paul. You may be familiar with Paul. Paul was actually a, a guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament. Um, Paul was almost single-handedly responsible for starting much of the first century church. But before he did any of that, Paul was just a Jewish kid. He was raised in first century Tarsus. It was a Roman city. He was a Roman citizen, but he was a, he was a solid you know, Torah-believing Jew. And he studied the Jewish scriptures as a child. And he learned them. And, and he had a propensity for it. His parents saw in him this skill set that he could, he could internalize and memorize these Jewish scriptures and he could process it and think about it in deep ways. And the rabbis early on, the Jewish teachers, they started to see this gift in, in Paul. And so they fast-tracked Paul into the, the Jewish rabbinical schools, raising him up to be an expert on Jewish law. And Paul was raised in the context of this thing called Jewish zeal. Now, we sang the song this morning, Zeal for You. Zeal in our context is an excitement. It's a passion. It's, it's, a, it's a, an overwhelming delight in something. And so when we sing that song, it's this passion, this excitement, this overwhelming delight in God and who God is. But in Paul's context, zeal was very different. Zeal was rooted in the Jewish history. Now, the cornerstone of Jewish history was the Exodus story. It was the story of the Jewish people who were slaves in Egypt, and God rose up, and he, he brought them out of Egypt. He broke the backs of the people who were keeping them in slavery, and he brought them and set them free. They were in slavery to, to foreign gods and to foreign peoples, and he set them free to worship the one true God and to not be tainted by any of the foreign peoples or their foreign gods. That was the cornerstone of, of Jewish belief and Jewish history, and that was everything to Paul. Everything. And, and even beyond that, the, the people of Israel, I mean, they had a spotty track record as far as following God. You know, there'd be times where they were really committed to God and following God and following his laws. And then they'd kind of get off track and they'd worship foreign gods and, and you know, they'd marry people from other, other lands and nations and, and worship their gods as a result and, and, and walk away. And then they'd come back and then walk away and come back. And, and the, the, the Jewish people's history with God was, was really hit and miss. And there were people like Paul who in the middle of this had this zeal. It was a passionate desire to keep the people of Israel pure, to keep them focused completely on God and God's laws. It drove him. It motivated him. The stories that he was told 
from the law and the prophets drove this. Even the stories from, the, from, from Jewish people just a couple hundred years before Paul was even alive, the stories they would tell each other around the dinner table about what good Jewish people did drove him and motivated him. One story in particular, just a several hundred years before Paul was born. There's a, a Jewish man named Mattathias. Now, his story is captured in a Jewish history, um, and it's, it's a Jewish history book called uh, the Maccabees. And so it's in 1 Maccabees. It's a story of, of how good Jews fought against the oppression of Gentile people. And there's a man named Mattathias. Paul knew this guy's story. And Mattathias and his family, they lived in a town, and, and the Jewish king, he was kind of under Gentile uh, leadership, uh, you know, the, the Romans would come in and they would give Jewish kings some power as long as they bent the knee. And, and so this Jewish king came in and he said, we're, we're going to worship these pagan foreign gods. And because he wanted to get along with, their, with his rulers, he wanted to get along with the people who were in power over him. And so he would spread these pagan ideologies. And, and so he brought all the people in Mattathias' town. He says, we're going to bow down to this pagan altar and we're going to worship this pagan god. And Mattathias was like, I can't do this because I follow the one true God. I'm a good Jew. I can't, I can't live this way. I've got zeal for God and my zeal for God will not allow me to bow down before this pagan altar. You know what Mattathias did? It says this, that as people were getting up to worship at this pagan altar, that Mattathias got so angry, so filled with zeal, that he grabbed a sword and he went up and he killed the person who was worshiping at the pagan altar. And then his family got up and they started killing other people who were worshiping at this pagan altar. And then he killed the official who was there, encouraging them to worship at this pagan altar. And that was zeal. That was the zeal Paul saw, the zeal that said, we're going to stand up and we're going to be pure and we're going to fight and we're going to do whatever it takes to protect and to keep ourselves up in line with the one true God, no matter who it hurts, no matter what it takes. That was Paul's zeal. This is crazy. Mattathias, his story continues. And just in Maccabees, I'm going to read this to you real quick because the wording is crazy. It says, it said that he got up and he raised an army. It says, now that Mattathias had an army, it says, they gave vent to their anger by attacking the renegade Jews. That's zeal. You go after these Jews who are worshiping pagan gods, who aren't worshiping the one true God, and you build an army and you attack them and you fight them and you tear them down. It says those who escaped were forced to flee to the Gentiles for safety. And this is crazy. Mattathias and his friends went everywhere, tearing down pagan altars, and get this, tearing down pagan altars and circumcising by force every uncircumcised boy they found within the borders of Israel. Now, circumcision as a religious decision or circumcision as a medical decision for your child, that's in a very different category than circumcision by force. But they were zealous. They had zeal for God and zeal for God's laws. And Paul, as a boy, he hears the stories. And these are his heroes Men and women who rose up and said, I'm not going to take the sin of our nation anymore, and we're going to fight it, and we're going to push it back, and we're going to do anything that it takes to do this. Now, in the story of Mattathias, if you see commonalities with maybe some of the uh, Islamic terrorism or religious fundamental, fundamental terrorism that exists in our world, you would not be wrong. Okay, the, the forced circumcision of boys does not look that different than men in orange jumpsuits, you know, lined up with men behind them in machetes. It doesn't seem all that different. And that's how Paul was raised. That's zeal for the Lord. That's what it looks like. And so when Paul became an adult, all of a sudden there's this, 
Jesus cult that's rising up and it's gaining traction. And there's these people who are following this guy named Jesus and the things that this Jesus is saying or has said about himself where, where he's equating himself to the temple and, and he's equating his teachings to the teachings of Jewish law. And then this Jesus dies and there's, there's rumors and stories of his resurrection which Paul doesn't even care about because there's still people who are following him. And as the people are following, they're spreading this cult teaching. And it's taking good Jewish people and it's taking them away from the, their ancient teachings of following the one true God into being part of this Jesus cult that is now elevating Jesus over the ancient Jewish traditions. And Paul sees himself in this story and rising up inside him is this zeal, this Jewish ancient zeal like the heroes of the past that he had looked at in the stories from the Torah and the stories he had looked at from Jewish history. And Paul said, enough's enough. I've got to do something. And so we see in the book of Acts when the first follower of Jesus, the first Christian who's ever killed for his faith, Stephen, is martyred. And we hear in that story that Paul was standing in the back holding the coats of the men who were throwing rocks at Stephen until he died, until he died in a pile of stones. And then we, we find out that Paul, after this, he was so fired up. He was like Mattathias when he built his army. He gave vent to his anger, and he went to the, to the Jewish religious authorities, and he said, I need a letter that's just giving me the authority to go and arrest and to torture and to beat these Christians because my zeal will not, will not permit me to allow this cult to continue to sully the, our, our ancient Jewish faith. And so that's what he did. He traveled all over the ancient world at the time, arresting, beating, torturing, probably killing Christians in his zeal for the one true God. That's Paul. Those are the things that he did. Busted into people's homes, taking their children out, believing like his hero Mattathias that the forced circumcision of young boys might save them and might save his faith because of his zeal for God. And then something weird happened. Paul, this person who hated Christians, like, I mean, maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, and you don't like church and stuff. Maybe you're like, okay, Paul hated Christians, I can associate with this guy, I can click with him, right? Then Paul, the weirdest thing happened, Paul became a follower of Jesus. Paul had this encounter with Jesus, and it completely changed his mindset, completely changed everything for him, and everything that he believed was now shifted in, into this context of following Jesus. Paul's life completely and radically changed, and he became the Paul who wrote the New Testament, the Paul who planted churches all over the ancient world, and we, saw, we see what he did. And so this, this, this conversion, this shift that happened in Paul was incredible, and you know, for those of us who are church people, we're very familiar with this story, but my question is this, how do you think Paul thought about his past? How do you think Paul slept when he put his head on his pillow at night and he heard the screams and the cries of the wives of the men who he was stoning? How do you think Paul slept at night thinking about the children who lost a father to prison because they were followers of Jesus, because he busted into their home and he dragged them out in the middle of the night? How do you think Paul dealt with the guilt of the things that he had done. I mean, think about that. The, the massive amount of guilt and shame and regret that Paul had had. And there were, there were people, I mean, Paul became a Christian 
And then he became a person who was passionate about telling other people about Jesus. And, and there was a point at which Paul was a new Christian where he had to get connected into a church, a group of believers where he could be discipled, where he could learn to follow Jesus. How do you think those people felt knowing that this murderer was in their midst? How do you think Paul felt seeing the way that Christians looked at him? There were people whose families Paul had destroyed that he would still run into at the store. How do you think it felt to see them on the street? And the last time he'd seen them was when they were screaming and crying, being beaten, tortured, arrested. Paul went places and, and started riots in cities, zeal riots where Jewish people would rise up and riot against Christians and beat them and arrest them. There were whole cities that Paul probably couldn't even go to and hold his head up because of his past, because of what he had done. And he'd done it all to destroy a belief in the Jesus that he now believed in. How do you think that had to feel for him? How, how did he possibly process that? Because that was a huge mark on Paul's permanent record. Now Paul wrote a letter to the Roman church. It's called the Book of Romans in the New Testament. And Romans chapter 8, I'll just tell you this. If you, if you have never read the Bible, or if you, if you had one chapter of the Bible that you could read and nothing else for the rest of your life, Romans chapter 8 is probably the chapter that you want to read. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 something that speaks to his guilt, speaks to his shame, speaks to this issue of our permanent record. And I think it's really relevant for many of us. And he starts this way in Romans 8.31. He says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Paul has been talking in the first seven chapters of this letter. He's been talking about God's salvation, what Jesus did for us, and how it worked. So he's been explaining salvation, explaining belief in Jesus, explaining what it means. And he's like, what else could we possibly say about this incredible and wonderful thing that God has done for us? He's like, the only conclusion I can make is that if God is for us, then who could be against us? And Paul's like, he's like, I was against Christians, and Christians were against me. And then Jews were against me because I became a Christian, but then there were still a lot of Christians against me. And actually, in the midst of it all, I was really pretty much against myself because I did some pretty awful, horrible things. He's like, but, but he's like, but I know this. I know that God is for me. God is for me. And he's saying, God is for you too. He's pulling for me and he's pulling for you. He continues in 832. He says, since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? He's like, this is how, this is how for us God is. Like, God is so for us. Let me explain how for us he is. He gave his own son up to die for us so that we could ultimately be forgiven for all the wrong things that we'd ever done. And we could be set free of all those things that make us feel guilty and ashamed. And, and he's, like, he's like, if Paul could do that for a terrorist and a murderer like me, how much more could God do it for you? And if God's willing to do that for a terrorist and a murderer like me, how much more is God willing to do for me? How much is God for us? If God would do that for a murderer and a terrorist, what more would he do for any of us? And the thing is, it's like, I know that this is true. I, you know, I, was, I grew up in church. You know, I've heard all this stuff my whole life that God's for us and Jesus has forgiven me. I, I've heard this. I believe it. But it, this stuff is still on my permanent record. 
That doesn't help me sleep at night. It doesn't help me put my head on my pillow. It's still on my permanent record. But then Paul continues, and this is where he really gets to the heart of it. In Romans 8.33, he says this. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen to be his own? And Paul's answer to his own question is no one. Because God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who could possibly accuse me for what I've done? Who could stand an accusation of me? No one. Why? Because God chose me. Why can no one accuse you? Because God chose you. And here's the thing. It's like, God said you are worthy, and so you are. No matter what's on your record, no matter how it feels, God chose you. God said you are worthy. And you know what that means? That you are. You are worthy. God chose you. Paul continues. He then says, who, who dares accuse us? He then says, who, who will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us, and he was raised to life for us. So God didn't even just, just say that you are worthy. But God declares us not guilty. And when God declares us not guilty, we are. God says you're worthy, so you are. Then God declares that you are not guilty, so you are. These are things that God has done for you. We didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, but God has declared these things over us. The things that make us feel guilty and shame and regret. And then Paul continues, and he says this, Christ Jesus died and he was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand right now pleading for us. That means this, the only one, who ultimately has the right to condemn us for our moral permanent record, the only one who has a right to accuse us for what's on our moral permanent record is sitting and he is rooting for us. He's cheering for us. Like Jesus didn't just forgive you and then cross his arms and go, but you really stink. And I, you know, what you did, I forgive it, but you need to sit in the corner and really think about what you did, okay? You need to think about that. That's not Jesus. He's cheering us on. He's rooting for us. He's pulling for you. He set you free of it, and now he's rooting you on. And it's like, how can that be, considering the things that are on my permanent record? How could Jesus possibly do that when he knows what's there? And let me tell you why. Let me show you how God sees your permanent record. You ready for this? Hebrews 8.12 says this, And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. You remember it. You think about it. Your in-laws remember it. They might think about it. But what about God? God says, it's gone. I don't remember it. That means when I come to Jesus, when I come to God, and I feel guilty and ashamed, and I'm like, God, I feel so awful for what I did. He's like, what are you even talking about? I don't even remember what you're, what you're talking about because I, I set you free from that. Isaiah 43, 25 says this, I, this is God speaking, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and I will never think of them again. Who are we to constantly think about those things that we put on our own moral permanent record to remember them, to feel guilty and ashamed about it when God himself says he's done thinking about it? He's never going to think about those things again. They are gone. He has taken them and he's wadded them up into a ball and he's thrown it as far away as you could possibly throw them. You know how I know that? Because Psalm 103.12 says this, that he has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. How far is that? 
Like, seriously, like, if you just started in the east and we're going to walk to the west, how far do you have to go? I'm pretty sure you just don't ever stop walking, okay? I'm pretty sure that's how it works. And that's how far God has removed your sins from you because of what Jesus did. And we hold on to these things, and we hold on to our moral permanent record, and we're like, oh, I hope nobody sees it. Oh, I feel so terrible about this. And, and you know what, what the worst thing that Christians do? Christians do this. They're like, I know Jesus died for me. I know Jesus shed his blood for me. And now I need to feel more guilty because that's what Jesus had to die for. And I'm so crappy and I'm so awful. And look at this. And if I just hold on to this, and I just hold on to this guilt, maybe, maybe somehow that'll make it okay. Maybe Jesus' sacrifice will be enough for me if I just feel bad enough for it. And God's like, stop it. He's like, I don't remember it. I'm not thinking about it. It's not a thing for me anymore because of what Jesus did to bring us back together. Because here's the thing. Jesus clears our permanent record. He wipes it. It's gone. It's like click, highlight, delete is what Jesus does to our permanent record. And you may try to go in and you may try to retype those things back into your permanent record, but for God, it's just gone. And he's saying, stop it. Stop going back to that. Stop typing that back in. Stop holding on to those things. That's not who you are. That's not who I've made you. Why? Because I declared you worthy and I declared you not guilty. Your record is cleared because of what I did. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything to make it happen. He did. And so he's like, I paid it, so stop looking at it. And so what's funny is that some of us are like, man, I feel guilty for holding on to my guilt. Oh. I'm so ashamed that I keep looking back at these things. And that's the thing is we've built this habit up. Our guilt makes us feel better. Our guilt makes us feel like somehow we're earning what Jesus did for us. And God has none of that. In fact, this is, this is, this is the takeaway for today. This is the thing that if, you, if this is something you've struggled with, this is what I want you to do. Okay? Paul says this. What do you do if you're struggling with the weight of your past? What do you do if you're struggling with the weight of your regrets? What do you do to deal with it? Romans 8, 1. This is what Paul said. He says this, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. If you go to court for something that you did and you're sitting in front of a judge, it's a 50-50 chance you're going to get off, you're going to you'll be condemned. But what if you could pull out a pass that says, there's no condemnation for this thing. The judge has got to let you go. There's nothing they can do to you. It's over. It's done. It's dealt with. Jesus paid the price. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, for, G for whom Jesus died for, and for, and for those who have accepted Jesus' love and Jesus' forgiveness and Jesus as Lord. There's no condemnation anymore. It is finished. It's gone. And so if you struggle with guilt, if you struggle with regret, follower of Jesus, Christian, you keep beating yourself up for the things that you did before you knew Jesus, or maybe you keep beating yourself up for the things that you keep doing even though you know Jesus, and all that guilt does, it's like getting stuck in tar, and it keeps you trapped in that sin. And instead of going to God to set you free from that sin and to lead you out of it, you just wallow in it like a pig in the mud. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to memorize this verse. I want you to write it down. I want you to put it on an index card and put it on your bathroom mirror. I want you to make it the, the, desk, the screen on your cell phone. Whatever you look at the most, 
I want you to put this there. I want you to memorize it. And I want you to say this to yourself over and over and over again. And the second that that guilt hits you, the second that regret hits you, I want you to say, no, no, no. There is no condemnation for me because I am in Jesus. There's no accusation to me because I am in Jesus. Jesus is rooting for me. He's pulling for me. He's not sitting up in heaven judging me or accusing me or condemning me. He's on my team. He's for me and he's cheering me on. And I will not be condemned because I'm free in him. Get ready to bow your head and close your eyes. If you're here in this room today, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe this is all new to you and yet the thing that's not new to you is guilt and shame and regret. Can I tell you, that's universal. That's a human condition. And it's the thing that we all wrestle with, we all try to deal with in our own ways. And maybe we deal with it with religion, maybe we deal with, deal with it with food, maybe we deal with it with alcohol, maybe we deal with it in other unhealthy ways, but the fact of the matter is there's nothing that can deal with it because it's on our permanent record. And our permanent record is permanent. Except that Jesus can clear your permanent record. And maybe today you're tired of living with a messed up moral permanent record that you're just trying so hard to keep everyone from seeing. You're trying to keep your husband or your wife from seeing it. You're trying to keep your kids from seeing it, your friends, people you work with from seeing it, your family. And today you're like, I just need to be free. Jesus can set you free. And so today, if you want to accept that gift, that freedom that Jesus has for you, nobody's looking around. I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything embarrassing. Just very quickly, right now, I just want you to slip up your hand. I want to become a follower of Jesus, and I want Jesus to set me free just right now. Thank you. Slip your hand up right now. Heavenly Father, I pray, Jesus, for every single person in this room, God, because every single person here has dealt with guilt and regret. And Father, I believe that you sent your son to die to forgive me of my sin and that he he was risen to life by your power so that I could walk in that same life that you've given him. And Jesus, I pray with my friends in this room who who are followers of Jesus but are still struggling with guilt. God, I I believe with them, Lord, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I believe, God, that you are for me. I profess it and I claim that truth. God, I will hang it on my doorpost. I will hang it on my mirror. God, I will tattoo it on the back of my hand if I must. But I will no longer live in condemnation and in accusation because I'm a follower of Jesus. And I will follow you, Jesus, right out of this debt of sin. And I will follow you right out of this courtroom that's seeking to condemn me, God, in my own heart. And I will follow you right into the freedom and the life that you've prepared for me to walk after you. I choose today to believe your promises in your word, and I choose to put aside the lies that I believed about myself. And I pray that you would help me to think that way. And I pray for those who've raised their hand today, Jesus, to say they want to become followers of you. God, I just, I confess with them, God, I am a sinner. I screwed up. I've made a mess in my life, God, and I can't put it back together on my own. It's too big. The, the, the things I've done are too huge, God. The regrets are too massive for me to, to, to deal with anymore, and I just ask you to forgive me. And in accepting that gift of forgiveness, Lord, I believe this. I believe that you have cut the cord on any debt that I owe, that I'm free in you because you have forgiven me because you paid the price so that I didn't have to. And I pray that you would help me, God, to set to set my eyes on you so that I can be free of the guilt that has controlled me and led me. Father, you have a life of freedom for us, a life of joy, and I thank you so much for all that you've done for us and in us today. And I pray it all in your name. 
Amen. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com. 